This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to episode 276 of the Conquering Columbus podcast. This is your co-host, Mike, here today, and uh, we're excited to be talking with Steve Morris on this episode. And Steve is the co-founder and CEO of Asset Strategies Group, as well as the founder and chairman of CBUS Retail. You'll learn more about uh, those two organizations during the show, but... We talk about a lot more than just that. We talk about Steve's past and his work at companies like Tonka Toys, as well as helping to launch Sega. But I ended up becoming the VP of Finance at Tonka Toys. Uh, and while I was at Tonka Toys, I negotiated and then ended up managing the launch of Sega in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Tonka kind of self emulated itself by buying a, buying a much larger company and taking on a lot of debt. We also discussed the challenges Steve saw while working in real estate for L Brands. We had these 6,000 stores and all this competitive data, but we didn't have it in a place where we could get at it or do any analytics around it. So I, you know, I went to my boss and said, we have to build a, a new real estate system that actually captures data. You know, they wrote a million dollar check. We bought Oracle and uh, it took us about six months. Kerry was pretty instrumental in helping design that real estate system. So it captured all the data as part of the deal process. And the founding of CBUS Retail, as well as the mission behind the nonprofit organization. It's a uh, service organization. It's a nonprofit. We want to connect, educate, and uh, network individual retailers. We think the retail companies benefit by having a more vibrant community here in Columbus. We've got a university outreach program. We're working with OSU. We're working with CCAD. Because if we don't have that future talent flow, what's going to happen with retail? Retail's 20% of the employment in Columbus, retail and logistics. We had a great time talking with Steve. We hope you enjoy this episode as well. With that, let's get right into the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Conquering Columbus podcast, this time live from downtown in the industrious space where Tim has an office. We've got a beautiful view of Nationwide right there out the window, and it's pretty cool to be here. But uh, I'm joined in the booth, as usual, by Josh and Tim. Guys, what's going on? Not much, man. It's a nice day outside. Um, we are not live, though, just to let everybody know. We, we try to be very clear on that, and then Mike starts off and says that we're live. So I mean, we are technically we're live. live. I'm here live. I, I think we're, you're the word you're looking for is a live. <laughs> yeah, but this podcast... And sometimes when you talk, well, I'm really not sure. This podcast will probably release six, you know, four to six weeks after we were live, but we're live now. I appreciate it. Right. I mean, you're watching Saturday Night Live, uh, you know, recording a Saturday Night Live, they'll still say, hey, and live from New York, (laughs) it's Saturday night. It's a recording. I feel like you walked into that sentence and weren't really sure how to get out of that. (laughs) I was going to defend you until that sentence, and now I'm on Josh's side. Yeah, that might be the case. But uh, today on the show, we've got joining us uh, Steve Morris, and Steve is a co-founder and CEO of Asset Strategies Group, as well as the founder and chairman of CBUS Retail. ASG is a leading provider of outsourced real estate services. Their team has worked with clients like DSW, Sephora, Express, and ASICs to optimize their real estate investments through a variety of different strategies and tools. And CBUS Retail is a group of retail business leaders focused on driving collaboration and purposeful connection in the retail space. We're excited to have Steve on today to talk about his story, ASG, CBUS Retail, and more. Welcome to Conquering Columbus, Steve. Thank you very much. Yeah. And, I, and I have to say, we're, we, we always struggle with describing what ASG is and mm-hmm. what CBUS Retail is. You, you did it perfectly. Well, I appreciate that. You know, we put some work Mike, in those Mike outlines. can't even describe his own day, and he right. just described your company perfectly. You know, I've been hearing that a lot lately, actually, though, so I feel like maybe I, I need to go into branding or something. But uh, So, Steve, one of the first thing, places we like to start is just get a little bit of background on yourself, your story, really, and that can start as far back as, you know, hey, have you always grown up in Columbus? You know, I... 
grew up in upstate New York, but I went to school at Antioch. Okay. In the sixties, that's where I met, met my wife as well. What part of New York? Uh, Ithaca, New York. Ithaca. Yeah, okay. way up, way upstate. Okay. So. And you said school at Antioch. I never heard of Antioch. Where's that at? Antioch's in Yellow Springs, Ohio. Okay. <laughs> the, so you came, you came to Ohio. Nearby, yeah, near Dayton. Josh doesn't get around much. <laughs> out of out of all places, how did you how did you find that? What what made you go to Yellow Springs? Well, uh, it's a pretty liberal college in the first place. Uh, both my parents went there, so I knew about it. That's and, awesome. Uh, it was a work study program. I I started working mowing lawns and paper routes when I was 12 or 14. <laughs> so the the idea of a co-op program where I could work for three months and then study three months was pretty appealing. Chappelle lives there. That's yeah. that's like famously hit, uh, Yellow Springs, Ohio. Yeah, you might run into Dave Chappelle. He'll probably yeah, make fun dude. of you. <laughs> it is yeah. one of those like oasis in the middle of uh, mm -hmm. of cows and that we have in Ohio. Where he did a show there while they were mm -hmm. doing the pandemic. A lot of them. Yeah. Yeah, I think he's doing a. Uh, somebody was telling me today he's doing a amphitheater show or mm -hmm. a comedy show outside. It's an awesome little summer. spot if you ever get a chance to to go through. Yeah. So you wrap up undergrad. What did you study in undergrad? Uh, philosophy. So that takes some explanation. I was really interested in city planning, and uh, there was an opportunity, and you couldn't major in city planning. You could kind of create your own major at Antioch, uh, especially within the philosophy department. And uh, Antioch had a special arrangement with Oxford University in England. They could send one student a year to Oxford. So I became a philosophy major because I wanted to <laughs> spend a year in England. <laughs> I respect that. How was, how was the year in England? It was fantastic. Yeah? Yeah. Were you just in London, or were you kind of all over the place? No. Uh, a friend of mine's father was the chairman or founder of a Quaker school called Friends World Institute, and he engaged us to drive. And, and the Friends World Institute was going to have a campus in Sweden, a campus in Africa, a campus in Botany, Vermont, one in India. It was a startup, and their idea was to send students around the world six months at a time. And he hired us to take two Volkswagen microbuses to Sweden, and then two microbuses, folks, big Volkswagen microbuses to Kenya. And the deal with Kenya was there was uh, like a fifteen thousand dollar import tax if you brought a vehicle into Kenya, but if you brought a vehicle in as a tourist vehicle and left it there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Your Quaker college, I guess there was no repercussions. So yeah. it's a we nice went, little yeah. way around that import right. fee. Yeah, yeah. We, we went through the Suez Canal about probably a month before it was shut down in the 1967 war, and then we wow. we had the use of the uh, one of the vehicles for about a month driving around East Africa, Tanzania, Uganda. That's so rad. Fantastic. Yeah, it experience. seems like it seems like a good time. So you wrap up undergrad with a degree in philosophy, and then you decide to go where at that point. So I worked uh, for a couple of years at Antioch, and then I got accepted at Harvard Business School. So, Which is uh, a tremendous uh, accomplishment and, and things that very few people achieve. Like when you... Kind of a change of pace from... Uh, right. <laughs> yeah, and definitely a change of pace from, from a lifestyle in the city standpoint, too. Yeah. Why did you... Why were, you were you always gunning after Harvard? Was it serendipitous? No, I was... Uh, actually, I was going to get an accounting degree probably at Wright State. Uh, you know, I got interested in business at that point, and... Uh, a recruiter from the University of Rochester came through and my business professor introduced me and uh, he looked at my test scores and he made the mistake of saying, you could get in any place. So I applied to Rochester and to Harvard. <laughs> <laughs> he kind of accidentally sent you away <laughs> to the opposite of his yeah, job. I, yeah, it was a good... I mean, good on him for telling the truth. But, right. yeah. <laughs> but so what was that experience like at Harvard? I mean, you know, the Harvard, Harvard Business School, right? And, you know, Wharton and those... 
those colleges they all have this kind of name for themselves. What you hear a lot about those schools, the difficulty, but also the connections you make there. So what was that experience like? What was the most valuable part of that for you? You know, it's probably I've never worked that hard in my life. Uh, we had three case studies a day uh, to prepare for. You had to read your textbooks and do any, any projects on top of that. So it, it was, I have to say, it was just stressful time <laughs> to, to uh, keep up and, and get through that. Did so. you feel like you walked away with, with the ability to uh, obviously understand business at a deeper level, but truly just do anything in business that you wanted? Or did you, did you feel like the learning was just getting started? I did not walk away thinking that. And it wasn't until later in my career when uh, people recognized those abilities in me that I realized what, what, what an advantage I had. So what did you do when you, when you wrapped up? What year do you wrap up at Harvard? Uh, 76. Is that right? Yeah. And I started, I did one job at International Paper as a factory superintendent. I really wanted to get my hands dirty, manage people. They wanted to move me to New York. We had two, two children at that point. I had one child when we were at Harvard, and uh, we ended up in Detroit, where my parents lived, and ended up working at Hudson's department store. And it, it was fantastic. Hudson's was part of a company called Dayton Hudson, and Dayton Hudson was, in retrospect, decades ahead of everyone else in the country in, in almost every, every way. If you've done any work lately on conscious capitalism, they, they would have been the prototype of conscious capitalism, talking about all their stakeholders, their customers, employees, vendors, of course, shareholders, the community. And they just lived that. And then on, on the process side, they were just, just thought leaders and just way ahead of everybody. So I, I, you know, I was put in jobs where I had to improve whatever went before, but I was starting at a really high base because the people before me had created really good fundamental processes. And for our listeners out there who maybe aren't as familiar with conscious capitalism, right? Conscious capitalism is a concept, right? So like the standard capitalist model says that a business's ultimate outcome is to return value to the shareholders, right? That is kind of the standard <laughs> model. But conscious capitalism says, well, that's not the only responsibility yeah. for a business. Businesses yeah, also yeah. have. Yeah, and I, and I think that's becoming pretty widespread. I think, you know, some of the bigger international consulting firms and I think the business roundtable have now said, no, you're, you're responsible for all your stakeholders. It's not just your shareholders. It's your community. It's your employees, customers, of course. Everyone has to worry about customers. Right. Vendors. You can't go dumping the, the waste into the river. You can't. So to speak. <laughs> Sadly, people do. Right. You can't. Right. Not, not, allowed not to if do you're a responsible CEO. Yeah. Exactly. Our sponsor is Waveform Music Group. Andy and Carlin have been working with us to take the production of Conquering Columbus to the next level, and Josh and I could not be happier with the results. Outside of podcast production, Andy and Carlin are experts in songwriting, music production, and sonic branding for companies of all sizes. And to learn more about them, head to their website, createwaveforms.com. That is createwaveforms.com, and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. So you get done working at Hudson's. At what point do you kind of go on? And, and it, I'm guessing there's a quite a few roles along this in this venture. Well, yeah, I, I had a really good 10 years at Hudson's mm -hmm. or at Dayton Hudson. Uh, I got promoted every, uh, you know, nine months or 12 months and uh, really had a progression of really good jobs. But I ended up leaving and becoming the VP of Finance at Tonka Toys. Uh, and while I was at Tonka Toys, I negotiated and then ended up managing the launch of Sega in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Tonka kind of self-emulated itself by buying uh, 
I had a much larger company and taken on a lot of debt. I ended up going to Norwest's bank as treasurer and ran their investor relations program. Norwest subsequently acquired uh, Wells Fargo and changed its name, but it, it was an up-and-coming great bank at that point. Then um, was recruited to Ames Department Store, was in bankruptcy. So I'm, you know, there was just a 15-year period of sequential corporate turnaround jobs. I mm-hmm. was really good at going in and fixing things. Uh, Immediately before the limited hired me, I was running a computer computer game company in England again, back in England. I have a knack of fixing problems and identifying what needs to be done. And then limited hired me, and honestly, uh, it was a it was a made, I was looking to be a CFO in, in retail again. I love retail, and limited said, "Well, we have the CFO of real estate job open," and it was a new job, and it, you know, my. First reaction on the interview process was that's not a real job <laughs> that you can, you'll never find that in any other company. So we went through the interview process and it it was fascinating. They clearly needed somebody with my skill sets. I remember interviewing with Mr. Wexner and I said, "How do you do real estate?" And he said, "Well, we just follow department stores and developers. When they build a mall, we take forty thousand square feet. This was in 1996." And we parcel it out. You know, this space goes to Victoria's Secret. This goes to Bath and Body Express, Lane Bryant, Lerner, on and on. So I said, well, that makes sense. Why are you filling this job now? And he, he just looked at me over the rim of his glasses and said, that stopped working six years ago. <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? And it just tells you how much. And uh, when was this? This was in 96. 96. And, you know, six years before that, 1990, he was already thinking of Easton, which opened in 1998. He mm-hmm. was, you know, he's a true visionary, thinking about what's next, what works, what doesn't work. So, you know, I ended up with a staff of about 60 people. We built a dozen or more processes around real estate, you know, financial hurdle rates, uh, real estate strategy, market strategy, asset management strategy, portfolio strategy, cost management. We consolidated lease administration. We started a landlord audit program that recovered a couple hundred million dollars uh, utility audit program. So it was the just a couple great, hundred million. Great thing about the limited. It's like, just go do it. Here, here's the resources you need. And you're around a lot of bright people, but just go get it done. So very successful and built a great team there. So I got a bit of a, a two-part question. The first one coming from you, you talk about these turnaround situations. There's many people uh, who have strong business acumen, but you can plug them into strong, healthy, sustainable environments. And you know they, they, they won't let the wheels fall off, and that's impressive. Uh, but you've been able to walk into things where obviously people previously had tried to be successful and failed, and you found success. What, what do you think? Is there a trend or a thread that you've woven across those experiences that uh, really sticks out to you and why you were able to be able to do things like that? You know, the education certainly helps. That grounding at Dayton Hudson about how things should work certainly helps. But I've been, since I was three years old, somebody who could take things apart and put it back together. I just under intuitive understanding of how things work or don't work. <laughs> yeah, and you, it's pretty clear when things aren't working and where they're dysfunctional, where the, where the problems are. You so know, when you approach a problem, do you try to boil it? Like, just to understand your thought process at a deeper level, do you try to boil things down to, like, the fundamentals and then say, okay, how do these all fit together? And then where, where are we falling short? Yeah, part of that. I mean, the computer game company in England, which was a lot of fun, they were selling games through distributors. Then the distributors would sell to the retailer. And when the distributor got tired of that title, they'd start marking it down or they'd return it. 
even though you were selling in another market in England at full price. So the company had no control over its pricing. It took us a year, but we understood we had to eliminate that middleman. We had to create a, a different way of selling. Uh, Electronic Arts had done that, tried to do that a couple of years prior to my getting to the UK and failed. Uh, retailers wouldn't buy from a third party. So it took some work. We had our own kind of rack jobbers going in the stores, working with the uh, working directly with the retailers long before we started selling to them. But then all of a sudden our margins improved 20, 20 points, you know, from 40% to 60%. And then we were in, I don't, I don't think the company understood it, but we were in the best seller business. I think we all understand that now about computer games. The most uh, we had ever sold on a single title on day one release was 5,000 units, which in Europe at that time is about two boxes of games, and they were sold in computer games sold in boxes per store. And I said, we had a good game coming out that fall, and I said, we're going we're gonna to sell 50,000, which is like an end cap right. <laughs> in every single store <laughs> and, and in all the distributors. And, you know, everyone thought we were crazy, but we did. We ended up selling 55,000, and it's just that mentality and uh, getting people to think the right way about what kind of business we're in and where we're going, and then getting people rallied around that. And... Uh, Unfortunately, in that case, people did rally around. In some cases, you just don't have the right people. You kind of make some tough choices, but it's always preferable to build your team. Would you say it's inaccurate if someone made the statement that you've been able to see problems, but not necessarily like in that case, for example, not necessarily problems that other people didn't see, but yet you took a mentality to the business that was, hey, I know others have failed at this, but I, I feel confident this is the right answer and we're going to be successful at it. Were you kind of that voice of optimism in the room? It is. Uh, you know, we had to inspire some partners around the way. We found a record distributor that would do the kind of the back-end distribution at, at kind of record margins, which is like 5% of warehousing and distributing as opposed to 20% or 30%. So you just had to find the right partners. And we found a company that did, we used to call it rack jobbing in the U.S., but it was that kind of shelf management process in Europe. We found a company that did that. We hired them right away to start managing our product in these stores, even though we weren't getting paid for that. So it, it, it is kind of finding the solution. And then when we pulled the switch, we had a pretty good title coming out. It was a Star Trek title that was not actually a very good game, but on day one, no one knew that. Everyone wanted it. <laughs> so, so, you know, you had to do the, made the switch with the timing right way. So... So you finish up your time at the limited, uh, and this goes to my second part of my question. Actually, I, my first part had seven parts to it, so now my second right. part will hopefully not have multiple parts. You mentioned twelve strategies that you implemented, and then you went into a little bit of a high-level terminology around a few of them. Uh, some of them more finance-related around like the hurdle rate and stuff. I'm curious to know, like, as you reflect back on your time at limited, what did you do that was unique and special? Like, could you, could you talk about some of those things in more detail? Well, it, it was an odd situation. I, I, I went in with the staff of one. The only person they gave me was the person who's now president of ASG, Kerry Barkley, who was uh, just one of the only people that knew how to manage their data sets. Uh, and we had no, we had no data. We had no technology that to manage all of this. We had we had these 6,000 stores and all this competitive data, but we didn't have it in a place where we could get at it or do any analytics around it. So I, you know, I went to my boss and said, we have to build a, a new real estate system that actually captures data. Can't do anything without data. So you know, they wrote a million-dollar check. We bought Oracle and uh, it took us about six months. Kerry was pretty instrumental in helping design that 
real estate systems or captured all the data as part of the deal process. The real estate, I don't want to call them deal makers. We call them directors of real estate, but the people who actually negotiated the deals, had, they're very successful. Uh, I think there were six there at the time. They're all, some are still there. Some have gone on to other really significant jobs. Most of them had either a law degree or an MBA or a CPA, multiple degree. And they were all a bit skeptical. What's this Harvard MBA guy? <laughs> Doesn't know anything about real estate going to come in here and teach us. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, but the fact is they were, you know, four out of 10 stores were hitting their hurdle rates and six out of 10 stores were failing. And it wasn't about doing the deal. It was doing the right deal and being more focused around markets and uh, coming out of Dayton Hudson. Dayton Hudson, the big department stores and Target are all about market strategies, uh, which was a new, you know, specialty stores just didn't think about market strategies. We had eight, eight malls in Columbus back then. Northland, Eastland, City Center, you know, on and on, and Lane Avenue, and uh, now we have Easton <laughs> and Polaris. <laughs> right. And uh, it may, you know, if you're the right brand, maybe Lane Avenue and, uh, you know, Tuttle's falling out of space. So it's really picking the right, understanding the markets and putting stores in the right markets. So as we got that market message consistently over and we started having success, it, it, people bought in. And then on lease admin, uh, we were getting taken for a ride, honestly, by developers. The lease admin and bill payment was decentralized, so each brand was paying their own bills, and they were literally, literally told, "Just pay the bills. We don't want you to disrupt our relationship with the landlords." And they did. So when we started consolidating uh, lease admin and saying we're only going to pay what the lease tells us we have to pay. We just started uncovering millions of dollars, and we started this landlord audit program that I think the first audit with a kind of a second-tier landlord recovered $5 million. So all of a sudden, people are like, yeah, do more of that. Right. <laughs> right. When you find $5 million lying around, we dollars. could use that. <laughs> and it's and we gave it back to the, honestly, we gave it back to the real estate director and said, use this $5 million, negotiate better deals, get better terms, get better co-tenancy, get better whatever. We got some of it in cash, but a lot of it was uh, we're going to lower our rents going forward on these these problem centers, or we're closing some stores that uh, you were having trouble getting a landlord to let you close. We'll invest the money that way. So you know they became big partners of it as well. Because you don't, you want the entire unit to do well. I mean, you want the, the best stores in there with you because that'll drive more foot traffic. Is is that the idea of giving the money back? Well, to our deal makers, it was you know we had stores we had to close that still had six or eight years that we were losing money at. And um, it would might have been a million dollars to buy out the lease. So giving them, not a million dollars, but a couple hundred thousand to buy out a lease. So giving them that money back to say, hey, we've got this pocket of settlement money. How do you want to allocate it? Do you want to lower your charges? Do you want to, it wasn't that optional for them. But right. <laughs> we're, we're going to close these stores now. Go negotiate the, the paperwork on it. Yeah. So it was, it was that. It was all about let's get our occupancy costs reduced over time. We were at roughly 15% cost of sales and occupancy in it. Three years later, we were roughly 13.5%. So, uh, you know, equivalent of about $150 million a year. So it was, it was, it was that mentality. What could you do to reduce your cost? We're going to take a quick break here to thank one of our sponsors, the Burlett Family Foundation. The Burlett Family Foundation is committed to serving as a trusted partner and resource to organizations striving to improve our community here in Columbus. All right, let's get back to the episode. 
So when do you transition into founding ASG? I did a couple of things before that. Um, and then I was meeting with, I always wanted to run a business. I never thought about owning a business or starting a business. I was meeting with Kent Kleberger, who was the CFO of Justice, which had been spun out by Limited, kicking around ideas. I wanted to stay in Columbus, love Columbus. What could I do next? And uh, Kent said, why, why don't you do what you did when you were at the Limited? When you were at the Limited, we were part of the Limited. It used to save us half a million dollars a year. So I said, no, I don't want to do that again. <laughs> and I went back a month later, and I gave him some names of people that could do audits for him and some other things. I came back a month later, and he said, no, seriously, why aren't you doing this? So I talked to Paul, who had worked for me at the Limited, uh, were good friends, and said, this is on the table. What do you, what do you think? And Paul said... <laughs> I'd take a shot at it. And so I went, I'm a, I'm a big believer in kind of go to market when you have a great idea. Think you have a great idea. The market will tell you if you do or not. Mm-hmm. So I went to, uh, I was going to the West Coast anyways. I met with somebody I knew at Gap and said, if we do this, would you buy from us? And then I, same thing, I had a friend at Foot Locker who was pretty high up. He introduced me to CFO. I went and made the pitch there. I said, this is what we're thinking of doing, how we'll approach it. Here's my track record or our track record at the Limited. And he said, absolutely, sign me up. And uh, Abercrombie signed up, and of course, Justice signed up right away. And we were off and running, then uh, Sterling Jewelers, then Charming Shops. So we had a, the way we were approaching that particular, we were selling these landlord audits on a flat fee basis. Um, it, it was just very appealing. And then helping them settle in creative ways. And then, uh, New York and company wanted some strategy work, and Kerry wanted to get out of the limited. <laughs> so we brought Kerry on board pretty quickly, about six months after we started the company. So uh, that was our second product. And then and we've just kept expanding. We want to help retailers improve their real estate. So we started doing store design and construction in 2006 when, uh, I think it was 2006 when Express was spun out of limited. They were... It limited their store design and construction is a big shared service. So when these companies are spun out, they need to do it themselves or find somebody else to do it. Um, so they were our first uh, store design and construction client and our, became our biggest for a while. And then, then we added the uh, deal negotiation piece uh, shortly after that. So that was all good. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like <laughs> it. So as this has all expanded and grown, Steve, what... What's really changed over time? You know, you've added more people. You've added, you know, it's kind of grown. And, and did you ever expect it to turn into what it is today? Honestly, I wasn't sure. We were, for seven years in a row, we were somewhere between $4.2 million and $5.2 million in total revenue. So let's say $4.5 million seven years in a row. Some, you know, when the 2008 hit, we, we saw the impact 2009 and we were went down. But other than that, we always had slightly positive growth, maybe 1% or 2%. And that, it seemed like that's just what it was. We, would, we had about 85% of our customers would re-sign with us the next year, but you'd lose 15%. So you had to replace uh, whatever that is, 750000 a year in revenue. And we're, we're just kind of churning at that level. And a comfortable living, uh, you know, along the way, Paul wanted to retire and did. And we, we had a buy-sell agreement and bought him out kind of is what it was. And then it, it just started changing. Uh, I did the ESOP, converted the company to an ESOP in 2019. That year we had 20% growth. Last year we had 20% growth. This year with the acquisition of Shoot Gurdman, we're going to have close to 40% growth. 
So it's like the Broadway uh, comedian who said, uh, after 20 years, I'm finally an overnight success. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mm -hmm. think there is something to that. Just being in the market 20 years, people, we have a great reputation. Uh, we retain a lot of our customers. Now people have gone from one retailer to another and brought us with them. So it's, it just seems to be accelerating. So I, I, I don't know how high is high, but I, I know we can get much bigger now. Where does the retention come from? This is the ignorance from my end on, on the details of the products and services. But I, when I hear real estate audit and these things, they just seem so much like one-time transactional. Yeah, things. yeah, that's a, it's a good question. So the, the audit business has totally gone away. <laughs> we, were, we were so successful and so was Scap and Foot Locker and Exotic and a few other chains. The landlords have changed their leases. So the things you used to be audit, the pro rata charges, which they never seem to calculate correctly, uh, aren't pro rata anymore. They're fixed charges. So there's, we still recover a lot, but it's not, it's not what it was. In 2006, we saw that coming and we kind of migrated that business and that knowledge base to what we call lease outsourced lease administration, rent accounting, bill payments. So just like you would outsource payroll, most companies outsource payroll to ADP. A lot of retailers will just outsource lease administration, rent accounting because it's complicated software. It's, it's really hard job to hire. And, uh, and we're really good at it. <laughs> Besides that, it's, it's really common in the commercial world to outsource lease administration and accounting. It was really uncommon in retail. And we're, we're the number one firm in that. So those are, you know, it's X amount per month per lease. The contracts go forever. You know, if a company goes bankrupt or gets sold, we might, they might bring it back in-house, sold to another company that has that in-house. But otherwise, it's, it's going to go on forever, except for bankruptcies, which kind of hit us last year. Yeah, the, <laughs> right. Talk about yeah, that. Yeah, retailers. But and then our store design and construction is another process where it's a, it's a good to cancel contract. You, you decide which, how many projects you want to give us. But in most cases, a client will say, you're doing all our stores. Now, they may do 10 new stores next year. They may do 20 new stores next year. But we know we're going to get that. So it's a... It's a as long as we're performing that service, it's, uh, it's, it's very cost effective. We lower their costs. We do it cheaper than most companies that do it internally do it. So that's a good process. And uh, tenant rep or deal negotiations the same way. Once you've established that bond with the CEO and the management company and they trust you're doing favorable deals and you have their interest at heart, they're, they don't shop it every year, right? They may bring it in-house or not. So that's kind of our core business is the... New business, Shoe Goodman, is much more project-based. It's much more, you have to resell that every year. The clients tend to have an 18-month cycle. The uh, strategy business can be kind of that same thing, uh, 18 months. It can be a lot of money up front, but then a much lower amount of money to maintain it once people have set up their, their strategies. And why, why even buy uh, Shoe Goodman? Why not just continue to pump the capital back into the lease management business and grow that side? Well, we wanted to be, we want to be as full service as we could be for one thing. So the one thing we weren't really doing was original design. So that's a, you know, now we can go to the clients and we do everything from deal approval to opening real estate strategy prior to that. And we can do it for any size company. We've worked with startup companies doing two stores like Tonal, uh, you know, the weightlifting equipment. We did Two, I think two pop-up stores for them last year. Now they're on a much more aggressive growth program. So I don't know where, where was I? <laughs> well, you, you were talking about, you said, because you wanted to provide a more holistic solution. And yeah, my, my oh, assumption right. there is that the, 
the market's called for that. I mean, the, the, your customers must have been telling you that they wanted you to provide more than just that, that lease management well, we aspect. Were, you know, one of the things we've always done in store design and development, we've taken designs, and we did this at Limited, that some high-end designer, design company made, then we're told to build it at a certain price point, and we got to go through a value engineer and kind of re-engineer that design to deliver it properly. So we've always had this anti antsiness about if we could design it from the beginning, it would just roll through to a rollout program. And uh, so that, that was part of the motivation. It's like, hey, let us help you in the, in the front end. And Chuck Gurdeman's a world-class uh, design firm. I mean, it's a very competitive industry. It's, in a lot of ways, it is centered here in central Ohio. You've got Chuck Gurdeman, Big Red Rooster, WD Partners, uh, Abbott Architecture, Shrimshock Architecture, Fitch. Uh, CCAD, constant supply of talent, University of Cincinnati, constant supply of talent. So it's a competitive industry, but we, we think we have a lot of industry contacts. Have you guys ever, or will you guys ever get into the holding of the real estate? Or are you just, once once you build, you're done? Not not while I'm still involved. <laughs> I think that's safe to say. But, you know, in 20 years, you know, I look at the the people I think I emulate are J, Jones Lang LaSalle, JLL, Cushman Wakefield. These are billion dollar companies and they have investment portfolios. They help owners uh, recirculate. But everything they do in commercial, they do strategy, they do tenant rep, they do project management, they do design, commercial design. Uh, of course, they're broker led organizations, so they do the deal negotiation. We do all of that, we do it in retail. It wouldn't be ridiculous to say yes. We're talking to a company in New York that's a direct-to-consumer company that's a really good brand. They want to now open retail stores. I'm pretty sure if we said we'll own and operate the stores for you, they'd be like all in. <laughs> so so who knows? Mm-hmm. But I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, makes a lot of sense. Well, what are what are the goals for the future then with ASG? Well, we, we converted to an ESOP. Mm-hmm. So that's got a certain framework. Yep. We want to... You know, it's an employee-owned company. We want the employees to benefit long-term from that. Their payout is a long-term payout. It's uh, as the company grows and pays off the ESOP debt, they their shares get worth more and more. So that's one thing. We also think we're just we are that unique company, but we're the dominant company in the space we're in, and we're we don't have that recognition. We have that parts of that recognition. Everyone knows we're the lease admin company. Everyone knows we're kind of the retail. Guys, everyone knows Shoot Gurdeman well. So we want to elevate that brand awareness. We're just going through a process now with uh, you know, really extensive consumer insight work with uh, Haley Boyning and StoryForge. And just that's all coming together right now. And so we're going to relaunch the brand in uh, September and kind of elevate our marketing market presence. So we've grown the company, I want to say, 100% through networking, through contacts, through relationships through references. We look at Shoot Gurdeman, they've, they've got a great marketing presence. They won a lot of design awards. They get a lot of opportunities to just come in, what I call over the transom, come in and because uh, they're part of a bid process. So we want to elevate ASG to that kind of marketing presence. An exciting time. And what about, what about personally? I mean, you, you did the ESOP, will you step away soon? Obviously you wanted to stick around for a certain period of time. You know, I've, I've definitely stepped back a bit we have these five practice areas. We're a company with really no hierarchy. Got some great leaders in all of those practice areas. Carrie's a great overall leader for the company, and she also leads that strategy uh, thought leadership group. I'm mostly now working on 
kind of the financial architecture of the company, financial plan, the banking relationships. Uh, we have cash in the bank. I don't really worry about that anymore, making payroll, but uh, I keep my eye on it. And then I do the business development. I, I continue to use my contacts as part, partly. It's not why I started Seabus Retail, but it's one of the benefits of Seabus Retail. Just having a really big network out there and uh, keep, keeping our name out in front of people. Hey, everybody. Mike here. We're going to take a quick break to talk about one of our sponsors, One Columbus. And we are very excited to partner with One Columbus. They really, really share the same vision as us here at the Conquering Columbus podcast, which is really building up the Columbus region to be one of the most prosperous regions in the United States. And One Columbus serves as the business location resource for companies across central Ohio and around the world as those companies grow, innovate, and compete within the global economy. And they help us lead a regional growth strategy that develops and attracts the world's most competitive companies, it grows a highly adaptive workforce and prepares our communities for the future, inspiring innovation across the board. Their mission really is just ensuring the Columbus region is a vibrant place to build businesses and careers. So again, we really appreciate all of their support. You want to learn more about them, go check out their website, columbusregion.com. That's columbusregion.com. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll be right back into the episode. Can you tell us a little more about CBUS Retail? Because we mentioned it before and it's coming up now. So what what is CBUS Retail? What is the goal of that organization and how do retailers benefit from it? It's a uh, service organization. It's a nonprofit. We want to connect, educate, and uh, network individual retailers. We think the retail companies benefit by having a more vibrant community here in Columbus. We've got a university outreach program. We're working with OSU, we're working with CCAD, have people from those institutions on our board. Because if we don't have that future talent flow, what's going to happen with retail? Retail's 20% of the employment in Columbus, retail and logistics. And I think we've all know retailers don't last forever. We look, I look at Dallas, which 20 years ago you'd see would be where Columbus is today. They had JCPenney and Tandy and a whole host of startups around retail. And now it's almost all gone. Uh, Radio Shack's bankrupt. Penny's isn't technically bankrupt, but they're... Uh, yeah. Going, going in that direction. Not having a good time over <laughs> there. Good, they've closed their headquarters. They've laid off, you know, 90% of their staff. So we don't want that to happen to Columbus. We all love Columbus. We want to keep this a vibrant retail community and leverage that asset. That's the main thing about Seabus Retail. We started it because I started helping people connect. When I worked at the Limited, you're in that big black building. You don't know anybody in town. And when I started ASG, most of our clients were not Columbus. I mean, we have Express DSW, we've done work with Abercrombie and a little bit with Big Lots, but 90% of our customers are out of town. So I, I didn't really know anyone in Columbus. But then people started, you know, when, whenever the Cena or Schottenstein or one of the L brand companies had a restructuring, people decided to explore their career options. <laughs> I've been there. Uh, I know what that's like, and people found their way to me, uh, and it, it started accelerating, and I, helped, I started helping people connect, and most of those people wanted to stay in Columbus and start a consulting practice or business here in Columbus. So I started slowly, then about four or five of the people that I knew said, why don't we just have lunch every, every month, once a month, and, and formalize this? And we did that for about a year and a half, and then the uh, Columbus Chamber asked me if I would help them elevate their retail summit. They had a retail summit that was sponsored by Franklin County that was a typical chamber event. It was a breakfast event. Franklin County would do a retail report, which was essentially sales tax receipts, because that's what's funds <laughs> Franklin County. 
And they wanted to elevate that and have some real uh, retail experts talk. So I helped them organize, I think, three or four panels. Ermer Steiner spoke, someone from uh, ULI spoke. And they loved that. And then the next year they said, let's do more of that. So I think the next year we did a day, a full day retail summit. And then the chamber leadership changed. They didn't want to spend that amount of money and effort. It was a, that's a big event for the chamber. They don't do big conference events. So then um, the group of us said, well, we'll just take that on. We'll form CBUS Retail and we'll do that, those meetings and networking events. I think we've had 36 events in the last three years and we've had more than 5,000 people attend. And that includes the virtual events we've been doing all year this year. So we're, we're doing our bit <laughs> to help, help retailers connect and, and improve the retail environment here, which is already fantastic, but it's, you know, it's the more people collaborate and learn from each other, the better it gets. Definitely. Well, Steve, I think this is kind of a good place to kind of head towards some of our last questions of the show. One of the first one is, you have any advice for our listeners who are out there listening? And uh, a lot of young professionals, 25, 35, here in Columbus. There are two things. I always like to talk about networking because I think it's uh, really important. And I think most people get it wrong. It's not about, uh, I'm going to go meet you. Can you give me three people? I can go meet and some kind of continuous loop. I think a networking is pay it forward exercise that if you're out there helping people connect with other people, hopefully it'll pay back down the road, but it's more pay it forward. Everyone's gotten help throughout their life and, uh, and networking is a very big important part of that and keeping people connected. Maybe start a podcast. And start a podcast. <laughs> Do that. <laughs> so that's one piece of advice. And then the uh, other piece of advice, it's... And, I'm not lonely. I don't say it's lonely at top, but as you get through your career, you have to find either mentors or people outside the company who will tell you what you need to do, what you're doing wrong, what you're doing right. I was fortunate when I started ASG with Paul, we had a, a pretty good relationship. It's, it's like, um, and you think of some of the other big companies, Paul Allen and Bill Gates and uh, Warren Buffett and his partner who lives <laughs> in San Diego. It's there's, there's something vibrant about that ability to get straight feedback from a, a peer. And when you don't have that, you got to go find that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you don't have, have that in a company, and if you're in a position of leadership in a company, you always have to be filtered that people are just repeating back what you say or saying what they think you want to hear. So one, one of the things I did, I joined Vistage a couple of years ago. I'm not in Vistage anymore, but that's a CEO peer group. And that was really valuable to me to just uh, get another point of view from other people They have, if you don't know what Vistage is, it's a CEO peer group. Everything's confidential. Everything's on the table. Right. <laughs> no one's afraid to say you're not thinking this through clearly. So That's awesome. So that, you know, just find those people. And it, it could be anyone in the community or someone maybe in another part of the company that takes you under the uh, mentorship. I think that's really important. Yeah, good advice, Steve. And, and our last question of the show, it's centered around the theme here on Conquering Columbus, and that theme is live uncomfortably. And without telling you too much about why we chose that particular phrase, what do you think of when you hear it has it applied to your life and career? I think of my career, and, uh, and I think of retail. If you're not uncomfortable in retail, you're not getting ahead. It's a disruptive industry. Uh, so I kind of lived that life. And as I said, I, I spent about a 15-year period as a corporate nomad going from one place to another and dropping into a different culture. And uh, so I'm pretty used to that and uh, embrace it. And uh, I, 
I guess that would be my advice. <laughs> yeah. Go for it. Try new things. Stretch yourself. I haven't always been successful, believe me, but you always learn. Yeah. So it's good. Right on. Steve, well, thanks so much for joining us. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you so much. <laughs> yep. And Conquerors, thanks so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed that interview with Steve, you want to hear more just like him, go ahead, hit that subscribe button on whatever podcast app you're listening on. You'll get interviews just like this every week, right near your drums. But uh, we appreciate all your support. We'll talk to you next week. The live show's over. <laughs> live show's over.